my advice would be pay more for the great cultural fit. From a seller's standpoint, the advice is almost the opposite. Take less for a really good cultural fit. We've talked to a number of advisory firms that says, I didn't take the highest offer. I, I took the offer from the firm that I felt like I was going to fit best with over the long term. I couldn't be happier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Space Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In today's episode, my guest Wallace Blankenbaker and I talk about the trend of retirement plan advisory firm aggregation. We discuss the current state of this consolidation trend, some of the benefits and challenges of aggregation, and what might be on the horizon for firms who have already merged or are considering it. The landscape of the retirement plan advice industry has changed tremendously in the last five or six years. And while the pace of change has slowed a bit, it continues still. And there may be some interesting twists and turns in the coming years, as we'll talk about in this episode. Now, there are a lot of reasons why industries consolidate. To create operational efficiencies and synergies, to reduce competitive pressures, or to expand services or geographic footprint. In the business of retirement plan advice, these factors are certainly playing a role in the trend towards aggregation, but there are others we'll discuss today. In this episode, we use the term aggregation to describe this trend. No one knows how that term became the favorite. We talk about record keepers and asset managers as consolidating, but advice firms aggregate. So just a note there on terminology. We'll also talk about related trends. It's impossible to understand the drivers and impacts of retirement aggregation without considering similar activities at wealth management firms, DC plan record keepers, and asset managers. It was great to connect with Wallace for this episode. He's the founder and managing partner of the Retirement Leadership Forum. Wallace and I have known each other for nearly 20 years. Over the years, as part of my leadership roles at retirement services organizations, I participated in many of his member events and benefited greatly from his presentations and research. So I'm familiar with the depth of his knowledge on all subjects related to retirement advice, record keeping, and asset management. I'll put a link to the Retirement Leadership Forum in the show notes if you'd like more information about his organization. Before we get into the body of this episode, here are a few quick reminders. Nothing in this episode is intended to be or is financial or legal advice. Statements and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the host. And the content in this episode is not a paid promotion. Okay, let's get into our conversation about the state of aggregation among retirement plan advisory firms. Wallace, welcome to the Retirement Space Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Let's start at a high level. Could you give our listeners an overview of the market? What is the current state of this aggregation trend? Yeah, I'd say, you know, overall state is uh, the the pace of acquisitions is in slowdown, especially on the retirement side, not as much as these firms look to acquire on the wealth side, but definitely the pace has slowed down. I mean, I can go back a little bit to talk about how rapid the pace was and maybe what some of those factors are. Um, some of them are going to be pretty self-evident. 
uh, to people that follow the market closely. If you look back over the last five, six years, we did about 220 retirement acquisitions. So 220 separate acquisitions of retirement practices that they brought into their practice. Top four or five there would be CapTrust Hub, One Digital, Pension Mark, NFP, really kind of a clear top five. All of those doing double digits. You know, everybody else in the single digit. So those are, you know, there's kind of a clear top five when it comes to retirement acquisitions. Um, from a wealth perspective, which has really ramped up over the last, say, three years, 144 acquisitions. CapTrust, again, in the top five. Locked in creative planning in the top five there. Mariner being pretty aggressive. You know, they've got a emerging retirement practice, but are really building out that wealth side. Uh, would Insanity being another one there. But, um, you know, the overall trend, though, is we are hearing that on the retirement side, there's really only about 30 really sort of top shelf retirement advisors left out there, down from maybe 250 to 300 a couple couple years ago. So a lot of those have been bought. You know, when we talk to um, the folks over at Wise Rhino Group, who have probably done more retirement acquisitions than other, they're seeing about 30 different firms out there that are sort of fitted into that top box of, of acquisitions. Maybe another 100 or so that you would consider to be um, you know, maybe tier two, uh, under a billion, but say over 500 million in assets. And then there's still probably a thousand single practitioner, one or two practitioners, hundred million in assets, roughly, roughly that you would maybe do as a tuck in. But as we talk to the aggregators and we're actually just starting up interviews for an aggregator event, we're going to do in October, they would tell you that, uh, the word they use repeatedly is caution on the retirement side. One because you know the firms aren't the firms that are left out there aren't as clear of a slam dunk as uh, the ones that were out there a few years ago. Uh, some of the ones out there now they're just not as clear on the fit and the the overall trajectory of the businesses. Secondly, clearly the economy uh, and interest rates are driving it. So you know we've got private equity, which a lot of these firms are private equity funded, in their ear telling them, hey, you need to be more careful. You know, we're, the, the money's not as easy to come by as it was a few years ago. So we need to be more careful on how we spend it. I don't think that applies on the wealth side. So as these firms look to build out their wealth practices, which is a key part of their strategic plan is to is the convergence of retirement at wealth to bridge clients from the retirement side to the wealth side. They really do have to continue to build that out because it's not where they want, to, want it to be yet. So we see that proceeding pretty quickly in 2023 or, you know, at a, at a fast pace in 2023, but again, slow down on the retirement side. Yeah, there, there could be a lot of factors causing the slowdown, not least of which is the fact that there are fewer acquisition targets left. So in your opinion, what do you see as the key drivers of aggregation? Why are we seeing so many firms joining together? If we think about aggregation, really the first one was really NRP who went out there and said, hey, we got a lot of firms doing the same thing, doing the same processes, dealing with the, the industry continues to get more complex. So we're dealing with more regulation, legislation, all those things. And as individual firms, a lot of that is taking up the time of the advisors so they can't go out there and sell. So, hey, let's pull this together, 
create some centralized utilities to help with a lot of that administrative work and technology work. And the advisors can really focus on selling. So, you know, the genesis of it was a scale play. I think the, the, the more recent iteration of it has been much more, less on the cost side and much more on the revenue side. So as Hub, we are a tremendously large insurance practice. We've got relationships with thousands of business owners and, and businesses, all that probably need a retirement plan. Uh, shouldn't we be in the retirement plan business to kind of build out our suite of services for, um, for the workplace? Uh, so let's add that on. You've got CapTrust, another great example of a firm that was extremely successful in the retirement side as a retirement advisor who have said, wow, we've got millions of participants, each of whom needs advice to help manage their assets. So they really look at it as a wealth management, you know, they're one of the first ones that really looked at this as a wealth management play, bringing together those two businesses. So I think it's really the convergence of wealth and retirement and health and retirement that uh, there's a belief that there's a lot of synergy between those businesses um, that if I am in one place, I can really grow out the other and vice versa, that are really driving, I think, probably the, the acquisitions over the last two to three years. Yeah, we talked earlier about other factors, and I brought up liquidity as a driver. And I was originally thinking that one motivator was the fact that an organization could pick up a liquidity premium by aggregating firms into a larger organization, because once you're big enough, you could take it public or it would be easier to sell as a larger firm. But there are other aspects of liquidity that might be at work here. What are your thoughts? You say liquidity, and my head goes two places because we know a lot of the owners of these aggregators. So on the one hand, it's liquidity for the principals that started this aggregation to begin with, um, who have said, man, I worked really hard to bring together this firm, and now I've got a private equity firm who puts a pretty significant value on it. I can get some of my money out while also getting investment capital to, to continue to grow and, and make more acquisitions, more quick, you know, more quickly make more acquisitions. So not only can I get a little bit out for myself and take some off the table, but I also feel like I'm not taking all the risk with all of my capital with these acquisitions. So I think one aspect of it is the, the, you know, there's a small set of owners of some of these aggregators who are saying, I need to take some off the table, but also get investment capital. Yeah, I think from private equity standpoint, they really are basing their valuations on the wealth opportunity. So, you know, you can maybe get five to 10 basis points on uh, advising on retirement assets when you're in the, you know, sort of mid-market. Um, you can get 80, 90, 100 basis points on the wealth assets. So every dollar they can move from a retirement plan to a wealth management relationship, you know, five, six, seven, 10 times the amount of revenue. So that's what they're basing their, their pricing on. So they think, yeah, to your point, if I can buy this firm as a, an evaluation of a retirement advisor, but sell it at the valuation of a wealth management firm, uh, we could potentially do really well uh, with the investment here. Yeah, it's a great plan if you can make it happen. And I don't want to sound skeptical, but I've seen firms try to do this before add wealth management to their practices. I've even been involved in this before. And it's harder than it looks on paper to pull off. I think that's right. 
I mean, in, in the competitive environment, it's pretty stiff, right? So you've got household names on the wealth side um, with which you're now competing. So if you think of the competitive environment in the retirement side of things, I mean, it really was a bunch of small kind of homespun firms. Uh, now you've got some larger firms because of aggregation. But, you know, there, if I was in a mid-sized city like Grand Rapids, I could have been the only game in town from a retirement perspective. But there were probably 10 different wealth management firms in, in Grand Rapids. So they're in, entering into an environment where the com- competitive side of things is much, more, is much higher. And you're competing with household names now. Uh, you know, you're competing with Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, who are all in these in these towns. So I, I would just say from that standpoint, it's much harder. They also will tell us that the integration of these wealth acquisitions, the, if the aggregators will tell us, is much harder than a retirement acquisition. Um, just because of the technology they use, they might, they might have multiple custodians. They might be using several broker dealers. So kind of bringing all that into the bringing all that into their side and trying to get all that integrated in has proved really difficult for a lot of the aggregators. Yeah, that's not surprising. Okay, I'd like to change directions a bit. So much of the discussion about aggregation is focused on the opportunity for advisory firms, those firms that are merging, or the buyer's economic potential for putting one of these organizations together. But I'd like to hear your opinion as to why aggregation is good for plan participants or the sponsors, if it is, because in the end, this is why we're here, to serve them. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think from a plan sponsor and especially the participant is where we should, and we're already seeing benefits, and I'll give two specific examples. One is on financial wellness and advice. In order to get the wealth management relationship, these firms understand they have to build a relationship with the participant. They feel like, the best way to build that relationship with the participant is really two, you know, what we would call bridges to wealth. One being financial wellness. And so a lot of these aggregators have built their own financial wellness platforms, open those up and work and will work hand in hand with the participants on making sure that they've achieved some of the goals that a financial wellness platform might, might lay out for you. So I think you get a lot more support as a participant today from an advisor or someone on their team than you would have 10 years ago because they know they've got to offer that support and not just leave it to the record keeper. You know, the second benefit I think is on cost and pricing. Because of this aggregation, you know, CITs have taken off and we we see a one-to-one link between aggregation on the advisor side and CITs uh, because all of these aggregators are going to the asset managers and saying, all right, we want your best price. Uh, we might even want better than best pricing because we're, you know, cap trust or, or hub, we're extremely large. Um, and the way that the asset managers have reacted to that is to really dive deep into the CIT space and say, you know, the, the way we can get you the cheapest price is a CIT. We'll create a share class just for you. And we'll price that a few basis points lower than everybody else gets because we're, uh, you and I are going to be partners here. So I think there, those are two specific examples of how the participant is benefiting right away. I think the plan sponsor, it's, um, you know, the, it's an open question of to whether or not the plan sponsor is going to benefit. They're going to lose some flexibility, right? 
you know, as these firms get larger and establish these partnerships with asset managers to get the CITs, maybe some of the choice for the plan sponsor disappears. I don't think participants, frankly, it's not that they don't care about that choice, but they don't, they're not going to be affected as much by that choice. You're still going to have plenty of options for target dates and all that, but maybe at the plan sponsor level, it's like, hey, if I want fund XYZ, I, I may not be able to get it. And it's going to affect record keeper choice. So we definitely see the aggregators saying, I really want to focus on a set of four or five record keepers. So I don't, one, one aggregator told us they have 65 different record keepers that after all the acquisitions they're supporting. And I, my response to that was, I didn't realize there were 65. But if you go through the list, I think the ability to maybe choose one of those from a plan sponsor standpoint could definitely be limited as uh, as time goes forward. So I think participant gets more services, better pricing. Plan sponsor probably gets increasingly put into a box on on some of the choices they can make. And just a note to the listeners, when you mentioned CITs, you were referring to collective investment trusts, which are a type of investment that allows the asset manager more flexibility on their pricing of their investment offerings client by client. And they're typically only available to plans that fall under ERISA. So Wallace, when we were preparing for this episode, I posed the question to you if you thought there was any connection or even impact of the related trends that have been going on related to the consolidation of record-keeping organizations or asset managers. And you thought that that was worth discussing. What do you think about that? Are, are any of these trends related or even impacting each other? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question because the, the answer is sort of yes and no, right? So it would be impossible to ignore the, the economics of the record-keeping business as a tremendously large driver of why the record-keepers are, are coming together. You know, Secure 1 and 2 are just such a great example of that. A couple of the firms that we've talked to that are smaller record-keepers are like, you know, the expense here is tremendous for implementing the opportunities for participants and plan sponsors created by Secure 1 and 2.0 are amazing, but the expense to put these things in place you know, just take the ability to do Roth contributions, matching contributions as Roth contributions, you know, run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars just for that one simple thing. So, you know, the continued fee pressure plus the continued need to innovate and add new capabilities, and clearly number one driver, record keepers. From an asset manager standpoint, you know, I think, again, it's they're starting to feel the fee pressure. So they're realizing that um, they need to come together. What we hear there, it's may, it's more of the wealth side driving some of the consolidation on asset management than retirement, quite frankly. So maybe that's that's not as relevant. There is a connection, especially between the record keeper consolidation and the advisor consolidation, which is as these advisory firms consolidate, one of their mandates is to reduce the number of record keepers they work with to make everything run smoother. Um, the typical number we hear is five. While we don't necessarily think there's only going to be five record keepers left because everybody's five is going to be a little bit different, that definitely will force the hand of some some of the record keepers that say, if I'm not consistently making it into one of those top five among the top 15 or 20 advisory firms, I'm going to have to look at whether or not this business is, is worth it for me. So we definitely would see a relationship between those trends because um, aggregation on the advisor side is going to force the hand of a number of the record keepers maybe that are still out there. Yeah, that's that's interesting. 
there's more of a connection there between these trends than I had originally thought. Okay, what do you see happening next? We're a few years into these mergers. Buyers and sellers are past their honeymoon period. Are these firms going to just keep on going down this path, executing their original strategy, or do you see potential changes on the horizon? We kind of look at it as 2025 is going to be a really big year for the aggregators, and a couple different reasons for that that I'll get at your I'll get at your question though, which is reason one is a lot of the private equity investments will be hitting their four or five year kind of are we are we getting the returns that we want here? Do we want to re up? Do we want to try to sell it to somebody else? Uh, recapitalize or sell it to somebody else? So a lot of those decisions are going to be happening across the next couple of years, and we kind of view twenty twenty five as the is when those first ones will be happening. And then secondly, to your question, a lot of the earnouts uh, that maybe the advisors had as that were purchased by the aggregators had as part of their deal um, are going to be coming up in that 2025 time frame as well. So they'll have gotten all the money that they've been promised as part of the purchase. So as we've talked to advisors, we have heard a couple of things, and it's you know, hey, it was when I'm an entrepreneurial type of person. I really like the model where everything I sold, um, I got, you know, 75% of or whatever the margins were at their firm. But now, you know, they're kind of in a position where roughly, roughly the advisor will take about 25% of whatever they sell in a, in a um, you know, it a, you can run through a lot of the numbers, but if you just want to keep it simple, it's like, about 25% of a new sale will ultimately hit their uh, their take-home pay um, versus, say, 50 to 75%. So certainly they're going to look at that. They say, I've been paid off now. Maybe it's maybe I want to kind of think about going back on my own or um, looking for a better deal from somebody else. So that's certainly a risk. I think the other risk is just one of of, of capital. So will they be able to continue to, to get the next capital infusion they need to continue on the growth trajectory from private equity. Um, if the current market continues and they don't, uh, you know, big risk is they don't hit that retirement to wealth convergence. Uh, some of the goals they've set for themselves there. I think that's another big risk for the firms. What we think is going to happen is, yeah, you'll definitely see some defections. More likely, some of the firms that have positioned themselves as quote unquote aggregators might think about selling their retirement practice. So take a big, large, health insurance benefits company might look at that and say, wow, the, you know, the, the strategy there didn't work. We're going to sell it to one of the other aggregators. We see that as a real possibility, especially if private equity is saying, you know, we want, um, we want to get our investment out. That might happen as well. Interesting. We'll have to see where this goes next. 2025 will be here before you know it. So here's another angle I'd like your opinion on. Whenever I see a trend that's so pronounced like we're seeing with aggregation, I'm interested in the reactions in the other direction, the counter trends. Now, you've made a clear case as to why aggregation is happening and may continue, but does this create an opportunity for smaller organizations who want to remain independent? It would give them a point of differentiation and maybe they just want to keep their autonomy, serve their clients and just remain independent. Yeah, I think it does. I think it creates some uh, opportunity and 
And, uh, you know, there's a few affiliation models out there that down the road could really benefit. So the affiliation model is one where I still get to be my own firm. I'm not owned, but I'm affiliated with, say, an RPAG, who I think is probably the firm that stands to benefit most uh, of the non-aggregators. Let's, so let's take RPAG as the example of a beneficiary. They've got low-cost CITs that they can offer to any advisor that, that affiliates with them. They've got a great technology platform that advisors can use to you know, do all their client management, keep track of where all their plans are, et cetera, et cetera. They're, all, they're constantly increasing the number of data feeds they're getting from asset managers and record keepers so they can bring together my entire book of plan business in one place. And they've got a financial wellness platform. They've got, obviously, fiduciary experts, ERISA experts, and all that. So, yeah, I think it creates a, an opportunity for a firm like RPAG to put a value proposition out there for the small firm that wants to stay independent and can make a really good business staying independent because there's enough clients out there that, that value that independence that, that he or she has, but still needs to compete on a technology, from a technology standpoint. To your point, I think that's the next trend to watch in that 2025 time frame. You know, what's going on with an RPAG as 2025 rolls around? Are they growing as fast as, as we might think they would be? And if you see, their, see them growing, I think that says a lot about your point to the, the independent trend being something that could be a, a unattended consequence of the aggregation. Got it. Thank you for that perspective. So as a final question... You have a front row seat to what's happening with aggregation, and you've talked with nearly all the organizations involved in this trend. So maybe more than anyone, you're in the best position to speak on this topic. What advice do you have for either buyers or sellers going forward? Probably feels a bit hackneyed, but what we've found is that, and this advice would actually work for buyers and sellers, is that one is that culture probably is more important than price. The cultural fit from a buyer's standpoint is going to make sure you're going to get getting a firm that's going to stick around, be happy, be productive, and be in line with the goals that you set forth for your, for your practice. My advice would be pay more for the great cultural fit. From a seller's standpoint, the advice is almost the opposite. Take less for a really good cultural fit. We've talked to a number of advisory firms that says, I didn't take the highest offer I took the offer from the firm that I felt like I was going to fit best with over the long term. I couldn't be happier because I've heard stories from other firms, the firm I was going to go to that weren't so great. I'm super happy with the decision I made. I think there's a there's another aspect to that too is, well, what is cultural fit? My advice for, for the aggregator firms would be really figure out what that is and how to assess that during the, the process of buying a firm. Um, some firms have really sorted out specific questions that they've asked to make sure that the fit's right. And there, you know, I think that goes for the sellers too, having the questions uh, ready to go, other than how much are you going to pay me and what's the multiple, really digging into how these firms are going to operate and how they want to treat your practice going forward is going to be kind of critical to making sure you're, that the seller is happy with it. Yeah, that does not seem hackneyed to me. Early in my career, I was involved with several mergers, and a big part of my job was managing the integration of these organizations, and that's what I found as well. So I agree, cultural fit is hugely important. So Wallace, I think we've covered it. It's always great to catch up with you, 
And thank you again for being a guest on the Retirement Space Podcast. Great to be here, Matt, and really enjoyed the conversation today. Okay, that does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Like I said earlier, I'll put a link to the Retirement Leadership Forum's website in the show notes of this episode so you can learn more about Wallace's organization. And if you'd like to check out my other Retirement Space Podcast episodes, head over to www.theretirementspace.com. If you found this episode useful, I would truly appreciate it if you left a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the message out to new potential listeners. And you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts even if you listen to this episode on another platform like Spotify or Stitcher. Finally, if you have any comments or questions about this episode or have suggestions for guests for future episodes, you can email me at matt at theretirementspace.com. <laughs>